Good morning, Tri-Valley. This be persecuted as Christians. He was concerned that they might abandon their faith and not follow Jesus anymore. And then he hears that his concern was unfounded because they remain strong in the faith and he celebrates with them. So that's what we're gonna hear in this next section of Paul's letter. Just an encouragement and relief that he felt after an initial feeling of concern for their faith. Listen to what he says to them. But after all our attempts to come to you were frustrated, we decided it was best for Silvanus and me to stay behind in Athens by ourselves and to send Timothy, our dear brother and servant of God. Our is Jacob. I am coming to you from underneath the beautiful shade of the tree here on the church property, right next to the playground. Um, but I wanna begin by asking you to just remember some of the natural disasters you might've heard about on the news. From time to time, we get this report about a tsunami or an earthquake, or here in California, like mudslides and fires are a popular one. And when you hear about that, you go, wow, your heart goes out to those people. But you're especially concerned if you hear that the disaster happens in a region where you know somebody, where you have a loved one, a friend, a relative, and you do what anybody would do. You wanna check and see if they're okay. There's even like a new feature on Facebook where people can check in and say, oh no, no, there was a disaster, but just to let everybody know, I'm okay, like we'll be all right. Well, that's what you're gonna hear from Paul in this next little section of First Thessalonians. As we listen to him send word to this church, send encouragement to them, in chapter three, uh, he has concern when he hears that uh, a storm, not a weather storm, but a storm of persecution had blown through their region in Greece where their church was. When he hears that his dear friends in Christ were facing suffering for their faith, when there's potential for them to partner in the good news of the anointed one, to strengthen, comfort, and encourage you in your faith so that you won't be shaken by the sufferings and wither under this stress that we know lies ahead. Certainly you remember that when we were with you, we warned you of the suffering that you would have to endure. Now, as you well know, it has happened. This is why I couldn't stand it anymore and sent Timothy to report on the state of your faith because I was worried the tempter had tested you. And if so, all of our hard work would have come to nothing. But you can imagine my relief and joy when Timothy returned to us with such good news about you, about your faith and love for us, about how you have such good memories of us and long to see us as much as we long to see you. Hearing about your faith, brothers and sisters, brought comfort to us in our stress-filled days of troubling and suffering. For if you are set firmly in the Lord, then we can truly live. What thanks would ever be enough to offer God about you for all the jubilant celebration we'll feel before God because of you. We remain vigilant in our prayers, night and day, praying to once again see your faces and to help complete whatever may be lacking in your faith. May God himself, our Father, along with our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, navigate our way to you. May the Lord flood you with an unending, undying love for one another and for all humanity, like our love for you so that your hearts will be reinforced with his strength held blameless and holy before God our Father when our Lord Jesus the anointed the liberating king appears along with all his holy ones amen 
Paul says, may the Lord flood you with an unending, undying love for one another and for all of humanity. This is kind of an ironic statement coming from Paul, if you know about Paul's background. If you know that he was once a zealous Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who had no love for humanity. And uh, he only cared about the people who believed what he believed and followed God to the level of devotion that he felt was appropriate. Saul's actions were religiously motivated and they were brutally carried out. He was a persecutor of the church. He thought Christianity was all false and he would drag Christians out of their homes and have them imprisoned or worse. There are people in our world today that are kind of like Saul, known as religious zealots, fanatics, even extremists. The actions of these people today and of those of Saul of Tarsus prompt many people to ask questions like, doesn't religion hinder morality or doesn't religion automatically cause violence? It's a criticism you'll hear often for people who are not believers and they're not just making this up. The evidence for this argument is pretty compelling. The Crusades, uh, Christian nations participation in the African slave trade, attacks that are carried out on Planned Parenthood centers. And it's not just Christianity, other religions have their violent sides as well. The militaristic Japanese empire of the mid 20th century grew out of a culture that was deeply influenced by Buddhism and Shintoism. Islam is the soil for much of the terrorism in the world today. I'm not saying all Muslims are terrorists, but they do have a track record of extremism. Hindu nationalists carry out bloody strikes against Christian churches and Muslim mosques, even to this day. And people look at this, this, this violent history and they start to side with John Lennon and his lyrics in the song, Imagine, Imagine No Religion Too. They think religion drives otherwise good people to do and to justify doing bad things. It divides people. It makes people self-righteous. It breeds hate. So if we got rid of all of religion, wouldn't the world be a much more moral and peaceful place? You can understand how they would come to this conclusion. But I would say the answer is no. While we have to acknowledge that even Christians have contributed to a religious violence and baptize their own inhumane actions. And we can even acknowledge the hate and capacity for violence that we have even in our own hearts. I think the answer is still no. Religion does not automatically hinder morality or cause violence. And there's other, you can take another look at history and see that people have tried to propose this theory and experiment with it and it didn't go well either. Violence and immorality still happens even without religion. If you took away the reasons, the religious reasons that people fight and divide and hate and hurt each other, they would just replace them with other reasons. If they, people don't divide along religious lines, they'll divide along other lines. An example is the French Revolution. This is a whole group of people who rejected traditional religion and they elevated human reason and it resulted in a ton of violence against their own people. Communist regimes in Russia and China and Cambodia in the 20th century completely rejected religion and were brutally failed 
experiments. Jesus's teachings, on the other hand, are non-violent, almost to a fault, almost to a standard that most people today could not possibly uphold. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Luke 22, 49 through 51, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? This is when they came to arrest Jesus. Should we get our swords and strike? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when Jesus was crucified, even while he was hanging on the cross, Luke tells us, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus calls his followers to nonviolence and to self-sacrifice, to value the dignity of human life, which was not a very popular teaching during the time of Jesus' ministry. If you know your history in the Greco-Roman world, it was a very dog-eat-dog -dog standard. There was a, a philosophy, the survival of the fittest. They would teach that free men had more inherent dignity than women or slaves or children. They did not give rights to people they considered to be less than. Infanticide was very popular. If you had a baby that you didn't want, or if it was a gender that you didn't hope for, you could just leave it out in the elements to die. It was very brutal. But in that context, Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to teach you, you should elevate women. We should value children. You should love the poor and you should embrace and care for the sick. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, values that we consider to be universal and independent of religious thought turn out not to have sprung from the ground during the enlightenment, but to have grown from the gradual spread and influence of Christian beliefs. Jesus' standard is very different. Jesus' standard turns out to be the height of morality. And it's understandable to judge the philosophy by the failures of its followers, but I don't think the real criticism that people have when they make statements like the one we're examining today, uh, I don't think their, their problem is with religion. I think their problem is with bad religion. Bad religion. There's a, there's a punk band from the 80s and 90s called Bad Religion. They actually have really good music. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of Bad Religion. They have a great Christmas album. You should check it out sometime. But the name of their band is a criticism of the things that are wrong with religion. And it also kind of reads like a, a reprimand that you might give to your dog if he, you know, chews up your computer cord. Bad dog, bad dog. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a watchdog phrase. Bad religion. When religion acts badly or does what it was not intended to do, bad religion. It needs to be called out. The Christianity that Jesus instituted, the Christianity that Paul commended the Thessalonian church to uphold was nonviolent, self-sacrificing, almost powerless by the world's standards. But that standard, sadly, was not always held up by Christians throughout history, especially when power and influence were on the line. And that's why you have things like the Crusades, bad religion and slavery, bad religion, imperialism, and feeling like God has ordained you to invade somebody else's country and make you like them. Bad religion. What about greed? Bad religion. Hypocrisy. 
bad religion. Lots of other examples that we could come up with if we put our heads together today. But do you know who is probably the most staunch critic against bad religion? It was Jesus himself. He was the most critical of people who thought that they were God's favorites because of their good works, because of their good deeds. He exposed their pride and their hypocrisy, and he called them to repent and to realize that we're all sinners in need of a savior and to receive grace as a gift from God and not something that you are entitled to. Christians need to realize that grace, once you realize what it is that God has done for you, something you could not have done for yourself, it should make you grateful and not prideful. It should make you want to extend that grace to others, but not hoard it for yourself like a power-hungry, paranoid dragon or some monster. And this is important for Christians to realize and to live out because when Christians get it right, it is the most powerful thing in the world. I believe the best response to the criticism that Christians, the, the Christian faith causes immorality and violence is a Christian faith, faith that takes Jesus' call to humility and giving dignity and care to others and self-sacrifice seriously. The antidote for bad religion is good religion. And yes, history has seen Christians get it wrong in spectacular, disastrous fashions. But we also have to acknowledge that there are lots of examples of Christians getting it right, too. Here's some quick examples for you to consider. Christians are the biggest healthcare providers in the world, period. The whole concept of hospitals started because of Christians. Christians are the biggest proponents of education in the world, also orphan care and children's homes. Christians in general are double givers to charity compared to non-Christians. They're the biggest supporters of disaster relief, elderly care, blood drives, homeless care for people who cannot care for themselves. I'll tell you a quick story that came out of my life this last week. I was at a Livermore Homeless Refuge board meeting. We all sat around at this conference table. We were talking about the future of Livermore Homeless Refuge. It's going to be uh, growing. It's going to be expanding. We're going to be able to do some more good works from some support that we're getting from the city when they open up the new location that's on, what is it, North Livermore Avenue. They call it Vineyard 2.0. It's an exciting time. But the people on the board who've been journeying with Livermore Homeless Refuge for a long time were reminiscing and saying, you know what? This just started out with a few Christians getting together and saying, like, let's help people who are sleeping in the cold, sleeping in the rain, being attacked, being unsafe because they're out in the elements. Let's help them out. Let's do something. And they were saying, you know, a lot of organizations that grow and end up being supported by the city, and we think that they're just like city-funded help organizations, they started because of a group of Christians. Livermore Homeless Refuge is one of those. Interim Housing Partners, Open Heart Kitchen. You might be familiar with these organizations and you think of them just as that, as they're, they're .orgs. They're a group of concerned citizens, but they started in churches. They started when Christians said, no one's helping these people. We ought to do this. Why? Because we'll get fame for ourselves so we can create an organization and, and have a .org after our website? No, that's not the motivation. The motivation was because Jesus said it's important to do that. Jesus said, love your neighbors, care for the poor. If someone's in need, if someone's hungry, if someone's thirsty, if someone needs clothing, you provide those needs for them. That's the right way to live in the king's kingdom. And it actually is going to cost you something. It costs a lot of volunteer time. It costs a lot of churches money to do this. But they said, it's still worthwhile. We're going to make this happen. They simply wanted to serve and love people in the name of Jesus.
And also, if you look at your history, you see that Christian principles were behind the abolition of the African slave trade in Western Europe and then later on in the United States. In 1833, this is before the Civil War, in England, the Act of Emancipation was passed. People were saying like, the slavery's not right, we gotta get rid of this. But it almost didn't happen when people ran the numbers because planters in the colonies reported that, hey, without slave labor, the cost of doing business is gonna go through the roof. Our businesses are gonna be bankrupt. It's, it's just not feasible to do this. It doesn't make smart financial sense to end slavery because so much of our economy depends on slave labor. But the Christians, the abolitionists in the House of Commons said, we still have to do this. It's the right thing to do. So what they did is they took almost half of England's annual budget and they compensated these planters, these, these people who were starting businesses in the new world. And they said, all right, we know you're gonna have a, a serious loss, but we're going to compensate you. We're gonna reimburse you for that just so the Emancipation Act can pass. And historians and economists, when they look back on this, this event in history, they just scratch their heads going, why would they do that? It makes absolutely no economic sense. It's, 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 it's a wonder there still is in England because what they did in 1833 was economic suicide. But the answer is simple. They did it because it was the right thing to do. They did it because they answered the call of Jesus. And yes, it was going to be stressful. And yes, it was gonna be more work. And yes, it cost them a lot, but they did it. Christian were the leading voices that said, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do. Disclaimer, maybe a right reminder at this point. Non-Christians and atheists and agnostics, they're not automatically immoral people. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying the only way to care for others or to have a sense of morality is because of Jesus. I think that that's just innate in all humans. Christians believe that we all bear the image of our creator. And our creator is a creator of justice. He, he desires that we care for one another and that those who are weak and helpless will be helped. And so it's natural that people want to get there. We have different ways and philosophies of how to get there, but that is there. But the answer to the question, doesn't the Christian faith hinder morality and cause violence is no. The way of Jesus is actually the best way for the world if only his followers would do it and do it right and do it faithfully. And that's where we come in. That is our call and our commission as followers of Jesus. I don't think any of you are gonna go out and start a slave trade or go invade somebody else's country or somebody else's land in the name of Jesus. But we have our kingdoms, and we have our prejudices, and we have our reasons to not love our neighbors, not to, to go and be hands-on with our faith. And we hear Jesus saying, my way is the best way. It's the most moral way. It's the most nonviolent way. We have to examine and root out the violence in our own hearts, even if it's just in our thoughts or things that we say behind closed doors. Our prayer is that Jesus will heal us of that. Give us a patience that we can't muster up on our own. Give us a love for the others, the, the strange ones that we don't understand and that, that just make us so angry and scared. Teach us to love those people, Jesus. Increase our faith. I want to end this message this morning with Paul's words that we heard earlier uh, sent to the Thessalonian church. It's a prayer that I think we should hold with us and that we should take seriously. He prays this, may the Lord 
flood you with an unending, undying love for one another and for all humanity, like our love for you, so that your hearts will be reinforced with his strength, held blameless and holy before God, our Father, when our Lord Jesus, the anointed, the liberating King, appears with all his holy ones. Amen.